0: Well good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege this morning of finishing up our just about year-long journey through the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at the rest of chapter 13 this morning. So if you have a Bible go ahead and open up there. If you need a Bible we got some guys that are passing them out right now. I'll have some different verses up on the screen but uh, definitely would love for you to follow along in your Bibles. As we get started, it's always kind of tough. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, uh, several years ago, I got really into a TV show called Lost. And um, and you know how like there was almost no way that this, the, the final episode of Lost could be good because there were so many loose ends that how in the world do you bring it all together at once? Kind of when you're when you're wrapping up something like that, something that especially we spent the last year in, it's a little bit, it's like, okay, how do we make sure that we tie it all together? And so uh, I'm going to do my best this morning. What I'd love to do before we get into the book of uh, chapter 13 is just spend a couple minutes reminding us of some of the main things that we've seen over the last year from this book. Our series throughout this time has been emphasizing this idea of Jesus as better, not because of what came before him was bad, but because he's better. It was all pointing to him. Even the, the wood panels that are here behind you, if you remember, we put these up using reclaimed old wood in increasing angles pointing toward the cross to picture this idea that all that came before, all that was in God's plan of redemption leading up to Jesus, it all comes together in Him. Chapter 1, we heard how Jesus is the Son of God through whom God has spoken now in a more full and complete way than how we spoke through the prophets previously. In chapter 2, we read about how Jesus is this pioneer who has blazed the trail to bring many sons to glory. We connected that idea from Psalm 8, that the glory that God intended for humanity in the beginning, the glory that we lost through our rebellion against God, Jesus, chapter 2, verse 9, has now been crowned with that glory and honor because of his suffering of death. And now through his death and resurrection, he has made a way to bring us back into that glory that God intended. The reason why he took on humanity the same stuff as us was to redeem our humanity and everything else with it. The biggest part of the book that we saw, basically chapters four through 10, just keeps on reiterating this idea of Jesus as the better high priest as the one who grants us greater access to draw near to God. Because he, unlike the priests that came before him, is sinless. He is not weakened or limited by death. He continues in his priesthood forever because he continues forever. He is that better high priest because he does not only offer the blood of bulls and goats as these recurring sacrifices, these 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 basically temporary coverings for sin, which just serve to illustrate how big of a problem sin caused to Israel's relationship with God. But instead, he came as the once-for-all perfect sacrifice who forgives our sins, who purifies our consciences, and perfects us so that we might draw near to God. Jesus is better. Last week, we talked a lot about what maybe was a new concept for some of you guys, this idea that the relationship that we have with God is in many ways similar to a patron and client relationship. Now, I realize just now, guys, in the back, I forgot to grab my clicker to do the slides. So if you don't mind clicking, maybe a couple ahead, and maybe someone can run that up to me. That would be fantastic. Right here. You guys remember that one from last week? I know it's summer, so some of you guys maybe were not here last week. Go back previously. That one right there. Thank you. Thank um, you. This idea that what what Jesus's God's relationship with us is pictured is like the flow of grace that would go back and forth between patrons and clients. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. Joshua, one of our elders right there. Great man. Thank you. So this idea of a patron and client relationship, we talked a lot about last week, and the reason why I spent a lot of time going through it is because this comes up a lot in the book of Ruth, which we'll be starting next week. So you hear a lot more about that coming up, but I was talking with a few people last week of saying, hey, could you give me an example, maybe something in our day to help us understand this? And I would say probably the most obvious example of a patron-client relationship is of the relationship between a parent and a child, which we all know at the very beginning when that child is born, those of us that are parents, is a very one-sided relationship, isn't it? There is so much giving of grace and provision and protection coming one way. And the hope is, you don't do it, it's not like you better you better earn your keep. But there is a point where you, you want that relationship to be reciprocated. And in a very similar way, that's the way our relationship with God is pictured. He is that gracious Father who sees us in our neediness who sees us, as chapter 2 says, in our lifelong slavery to the fear of death and to the one who has the power of death, that is Satan. And so he graciously provides his own son to rescue us. In the same way, Jesus is pictured as our mediator, our, our faithful older brother, who out of his intimate relationship with the Father, welcomes us into that relationship. He is the one who qualifies us and vindicates us. He secures our adoption our adoption as God's children. That's why chapter 2 verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he has now brought us into that family. We've been adopted into God's family, but like we talked about last week, that grace has strings attached. It is given freely, but because it is not just things given to us, but a relationship that we're welcomed into, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is, live in that relationship. Reciprocate that grace. Be faithful children. We've been brought into God's kingdom. Be faithful subjects. Do you know that's what all those warning passages are about that we covered throughout the book? There's a lot of warnings in this book. And they're pretty unsettling. And they're supposed to be. But these warnings are much more meant to heal and protect than to wound or abuse. Remember, the people that are receiving this letter are people who, when they first began to follow Jesus, they lost a lot. Chapter 10 talks about they lost property. Some were thrown in prison. They were ridiculed and and rejected by family and friends. And at that time, initially, they accepted all of that with joy because they believed that what they standed to gain from Jesus, stood to gain from Jesus, was better than what they had given up. But by the time that he's writing to them, some time has gone by and their initial commitment to Jesus is wavering. They have yet to experience the promises, but their memory of what they've lost is still fresh. And at least for some of them, They're tempted by the idea that going back will be better than going forward. And so this whole letter is an impassioned plea from a pastor to his church to say, keep going. Don't fall away. What you stand to gain is better than what you've left behind. So be faithful to that relationship. Throughout this whole book, he's saying, embrace your identity as adopted sons of God. Embrace your identity as pilgrims on a journey along the trail that Jesus blazed. And as he comes here to chapter 13, he basically says, okay, now, as we follow Jesus on this journey, let's follow him as our leader, and let's follow the leaders that he's given us. What I want to do is I want to read to you basically verse 7 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll make some comments along the way. I don't know, maybe some of you guys grew up in a church where uh, when Scripture was read, you stood. I think it's a great practice just to show our, our honor for God's Word. So if you would, stand with me and follow along. This won't be up on the screen, but let's read this together. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever amen i appeal to you brothers bear with my word of exhortation for i have written to you briefly you should know that our brother timothy has been released with whom i shall see you if he comes soon greet all your leaders and all the saints those who come from italy send you greetings grace be with all of you all right you can take a seat In our remaining time together, I'm not going to be able to cover every verse in this section, but I, I hope that I can encapsulate the main point of this. And I think this kind of does right here. In this end thing, as he's, as he's finishing up his sermon, he says, follow Jesus as your leader. Well, where did Jesus go? Well, take a look again, starting in verse, nine, uh, verse 11. He's going to, again, take an Old Testament concept and apply it to Jesus or connect a, an analogy to Jesus. Verse 11 he says the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp and so also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood in this in this verse here he's talking about he's again drawing our minds back to the day of atonement that one day when the sins of the people would be placed onto that one goat and the blood of that goat would be taken into the holy place and there would be the other goat that we let outside. But one of the things that was unique on that Day of Atonement is both the bull that would be sacrificed and taken into the most holy place by the high priest to cover his sins, and then the, the goat that was sacrificed and the blood taken into the holy place to cover the people's sins. Most often with those sacrifices... The, the rest of the animal itself would be the food for the high priests and the priestly families and, and a way to provide for them. But on that day of atonement, that bull, that goat, their blood would be taken into the holy place and then everything else would be taken outside of the camp to be burned. It would not be eaten. It was too holy in that way. And what the author does here is he says, hey, just in the same way that the bodies of the bull and the goat were taken outside the camp, I want you to connect what happened with Jesus. He suffered outside the gate. When the Jewish people, the the religious leaders in Jerusalem at that time, when they rejected Jesus and demanded that the Romans crucify him, the Romans led Jesus outside the walls of Jerusalem, but just outside the gate, where they hung him naked and beaten on a cross so that all who came into the city for the Passover would see him in his shame and would know, don't mess with Rome. It was humiliation. It was rejection. It was, we're going to set him outside of us to show that he has no part of us. And Jesus, who had all power to stop what they were doing to him, let them treat him like that. Why? Because even though people had shameful, evil purposes for it, his Father in heaven had a holy purpose. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says that Jesus endured that cross and despised that shame because on the other side of it was glory. Here he says that Jesus suffered outside the camp so that he might purify the people through his blood that he might be that once-for-all sacrifice for sin. But what he says here to us is he says, just as Jesus went outside the camp, look at verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and even be willing to bear the reproach, the insults, the shame, the rejection that he endured. If our relationship with God is to follow Jesus on the, bla- on the trail that he blazed, We each have to grapple with the fact that that trail leads outside the camp in a metaphorical sense. I don't necessarily think this verse is advocating that Christians need to insulate themselves from society and live out in the hills like the the mountain people that you meet when you go camping out in the hills that just live out there all the time or the the doomsday preppers who have their self-sufficient bunkers and they can just stay isolated from everyone else. I don't think that's what this passage is calling us to because that's not the way that Jesus himself lived. That's not the way that any of his apostles lived. So I don't think he's telling us literally, go away from any population center and live lives of seclusion out in caves and in the hills. Here's what he is saying to us though. Following Jesus means giving up our sense of belonging in the society around us. One commentator, I love the way you put it, says it means giving up our sense of at-homeness. Our sense of being at home here. Because, he says in verse 14, we have no lasting city here. But we seek the city that is to come. Going to Jesus outside the camp means embracing our identity as pilgrims, as strangers, as exiles. Being in the world but not of the world as we've often heard it said it's not that we withdraw and hide from the world around us it's not that we get excited when bad things happen because oh look it's going down in flames that was jonah jonah's the one who sat there on the hillside overlooking nineveh wanting to see its destruction and he was unfaithful and rebuked by god for having done so we're not those who wait around to be teleported off this world But remember what Jesus told us to pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. We're looking for a lasting city that is to come here. We are citizens of a kingdom that has already broken in through Jesus and one day will come in its fullness and overwhelm and renew everything that's broken and twisted and gone wrong in this world. That means that we live in between. We live as citizens of that kingdom, even among these kingdoms. Does that make sense? One of the places, I, as I was studying this passage, one of the places that I feel like, um, there was another passage I felt like had a lot of similarities, and it was the book of First Peter chapter 2. So as we go through the rest of Hebrews 13, I'm going to show you several passages that I think really line up from 1 Peter 2. So check this one out. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. This may be familiar. We actually looked at it briefly last week. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see how many identifying phrases are used of us and how even different they are, right? The whole idea of being a holy nation means that we are a distinct nation within the nations around us. Does that make sense? The idea of being a royal priesthood, or the way that, that Exodus 19, which is this, this is quoted from, says it, is that we are a kingdom of priests. We are citizens of a different kingdom, yet we exist as priests to represent God to the people around us. Going to Jesus outside the camp means giving up our sense of at-homeness and remembering that we are to be distinct from our community For the sake of our community. Does that make sense? Someone told me I said that too much last week. So I'm going to try not to say does that make sense anymore this time. Here's what I want to say, guys. Actually, I'm going to go back. What this means, as I've grappled with this in my own life, is that our citizenship in God's kingdom needs to be more real and precious and defining in our lives than the country that issues our passport i mean no disrespect by that i am not in any way anti-american i'm grateful for the freedoms that the american government has provided for us though they seem to be shrinking but my concern listen to me please here my concern is that many of us have a hard time distinguishing between our identity in Christ and our identity in America. I know that's the way that it's been for me growing up. Um, I grew up in a very patriotic family. I, I, I remember I, as a kid, I loved that song, I'm Proud to Be an American. Remember that one? I'm proud to be American where at least I know I'm free and I won't forget the men As a kid, no joke, here, as a kid, I thought it said, and I won't forget the man who died and gave that right to me. No joke, I thought it was talking about Jesus. I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, Jesus died to give me the freedoms that I enjoy, and I'm proud to be an American. And at least at that point in my my childlike thinking, I didn't see any conflict. There was no tension in that thought in my mind. But as I grew into adulthood, there there were, I guess, two experiences that I had while I was in college that really started to change my thinking in that regard one while I was in college I had the opportunity to study for a semester in Israel which was fantastic and we we lived there for four months and toured around and really like it wasn't even so much being there people sometimes like you gotta be there and there's something cool about being there but even cooler than that was studying the history of what God had done there that now ripples throughout the rest of the globe as I was there, man, I, I was resonating on such a deep level with what God had done throughout history and particularly in that land, and I just I began to think, man, this, this is my family history. I, I'm as Gentile as they come, but because of Jesus Christ, I have been woven into that family story. In the meantime, I'd also begun dating a woman from Washington D.C., who I later ended up marrying. My wife grew up just outside of D.C., and shortly after returning from my semester in Israel, she said, "Hey, why don't you come back and visit my and get to know my family over Christmas time?" And as a kid growing up, there was always two places I always wanted to go one day: Israel, Washington D.C. And boom, like that, in a few months, I got to do both of them. And so I go to DC and it's so fun. They're showing us around. We do the tour of the White House and the Capitol building and the Library of Congress, which is way cooler than any other library I've ever been to. But at the same time, I was like, this is really cool. But even standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and seeing the little spot where it says, this is where Martin Luther King stood as he delivered his I Have a Dream speech, and thinking, Just a couple weeks ago, I was standing on the Mount of Olives where Jesus gave a very famous speech. And not only that, it was the place where he was when then he ascended into heaven and most likely is the place where he'll return from heaven. I mean, how does the Library of Congress compare with that? But it wasn't just, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just like it was cooler to be one place or the other. The more that I began to find my identity in God's story, the more that I was able to distinguish the biblical story from the American story. The more that I began to be able to distinguish between my identity in Christ and my residency in the U.S. This has been a, a long process for me. I've, I've definitely made overcorrections in the process. I've, I've stuck my foot in my mouth. I know at times I've probably come across as ungrateful or detached, especially maybe talking with the, uh, generations older than me. It's been humbling, but I remain convinced, I'm more convinced than ever, that the more that we as God's people find our identity and our sense of belonging in Christ, in God's story, rather than the American story... That will actually lead us to greater service on behalf of the people in our society than when we keep getting it all mixed up as one and the same. Look at the way that the writer of Hebrews, back in chapter 11, describes our family heritage, who we are as his people. He speaks of Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs, and he says this. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you see how our forefathers are described? Our foremothers, even, are described here? Strangers, exiles, looking for a better country, looking for a city that God was building for them. When the writer of Hebrews calls us to go outside the camp where Jesus is and bear the reproach that he endured, He's calling us to embrace our family heritage. Do you guys remember last summer when we were going through the book of Daniel? Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were strangers. They were exiles, right? They'd been taken as captives into the land of Babylon. And in many ways, it was the more that they embraced their identity as exiles, who even though they served Nebuchadnezzar, they really served the God of Israel. The more that they embraced that idea of being outsiders, they were amazing to serve. They were able to serve God in incredible ways, even in the government of the Babylonian kingdom at that time. I think it's fair to say that throughout history, it has been the times when God's God's people have been thrust to the margins of society that we've actually been the most faithful in our witness when we've realized that we're distinct, when even the world around us says, you're different, get over there, that it's in those times that God's people remember our calling to serve and sacrifice and speak truth on behalf of God to those around us. We pledge our allegiance to a different king, and we represent him in the way that we serve those around us. We follow a king who, Mark 10, 45 says, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here in chapter 13, he calls us to go to Jesus outside the camp and even bear the reproach that Jesus endured. But why did Jesus bear that reproach? Why did he take the beatings and the shamings, and why did he endure all that? To sanctify the people through his blood. Think about this. Jesus bore reproach for the sake of those who reproached him. Remember what Jesus said as the Romans were nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He bore the shame. He bore the beatings. He took on death for our sake. Peter in 1 Peter 2 connects that to, to us and says that's the example that Jesus has set for us to follow. Look what he says. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Both Peter and the writer of Hebrews are making the same point. The call to join Jesus outside the camp, to bear reproach and insult and even marginalization from the world around us, is to be done for Jesus' sake, to follow his example, and for the sake of those who mistreat us. I'm not sure if there's many, anything that, that could be more against the grain of American values than laying down your life for someone else. It's, we take care of our own. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We we make the American dream a reality for ourselves. And what he says here is Jesus has set you a different example. You are a distinct people, not by the way you seek yourself, but the way you lay down your life, the way that you give up your preferences, the way that you serve those around you. We serve for the sake of those who mistreat us so that they might see the sacrificial love of Jesus through us. Not in any way that we somehow suffer for people's sins. We can't do that. Only Jesus does. But as Christians, our brothers and sisters here and around the world lay down our preferences for the sake of others and even endure ridicule from others for the gospel that we proclaim, people see a picture of the sacrificial love of Jesus, which God tells us in his word will be effective to convert many and will also testify against the rest on the day when, Jesus, when God does come to judge justly. Look at the way just before this in 1 Peter 2 he says it. He says that Jesus, all right, let me keep moving actually. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's those words again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is a reality that as we embrace this calling to go to Jesus outside the camp and even bear ridicule and reproach from those around us, God will use that to bring people to himself. There was an early church father, I can't remember who, but he said that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. That the more that God's people laid down their lives for Jesus and for the sake of those around them, people went, there's something to this gospel. Man, I want this, I need this. We have been called by God to be distinct from our community for the sake of our community. We have been called to willingly bear reproach so that we might bring peace. This is a heavy calling. This is not an easy road. This is the path that Jesus has set before us. And as we follow him as our leader, We also follow the leaders that he's given us. I don't think it's coincidental that in this heavy passage about bearing reproach and following Jesus outside the camp, at the beginning and the end of it, are calls to follow our leaders. We follow our leader, Jesus, outside the camp by following the leaders he's given us. Look at verse 7. He says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Most commentators believe that here in verse 7, the writer is speaking about past leaders of this church. That actually when he says, consider the outcome of their way of life, he's talking about the way they died, or he's talking about the way they finished their course. In chapter 1, or the very beginning of chapter 2, he says that the gospel came to this group of people by those who heard it from the Lord. So he very well could be speaking about the apostles, some of the apostles, whoever it was who came to them and reached them with the gospel. He says, remember them. Remember that, that hall of faith we looked at in chapter 11, that cloud of witnesses who endured in faith? Remember the leaders who came here and brought the gospel to us? How they're now enrolled in that hall of faith. Their life is now a matter of public record. We can see from beginning to end. And because we can see that they finished well, he says, imitate their faith. But I also think it's really cool. I would almost love to put a colon at the end of verse 7 there. Because I actually think that the, the idea that he's talking about is this. He says, look at the way they finished and imitate their faith. Not just what they did, but who they trusted in. Imitate their faith. And what was the ground of their faith? that it's in the midst of the a sketch swirling around unstable world around us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever their faith was in his unchanging character in the midst of their changing circumstances so he says imitate their faith they set their eyes on Jesus he says don't be led away by strange and diverse teachings that's not what your leaders did they didn't run after every new fad and teaching They weren't running after money and women and pleasure and all. They weren't even looking to be on the the cusp of the latest fad in church culture. They said, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I'm sticking with him. Who are those leaders in your life? Those past leaders. Those people who you can look and say from beginning to end, I see what God did in their life. And they finished well. I feel like at different times, there's ones that I hear a lot. I, I spend a good t- amount of time talking with Todd and it doesn't take long before his grandpa comes up. And he talks about the faithfulness of God in his grandpa's life and the example that was. You spend much time with the Earwoods and you're gonna hear about Sheila's mom because she was an amazing example of faith in the midst of hard experiences. Who are those in your life? Who are those leaders you can look back and go, they finished well and I wanna be like them. Don't just seek to mimic their actions. Remember, their faith was in the unchanging character of God. You set your focus there and ask God to make you that kind of example for those who will come after you. It's hard. I can look at my life and see people who, man, they, they, uh, they burned real hot for a while and then flamed out. And I can even look at that and go, man, I'm grateful that I got to be in their life at a time where they were passionate about Jesus and it rubbed off on me, but where are they now? That's why he says, look at those who finished well and imitate them. We hold, he says in chapter three, we we share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm until the end how do we hold up those examples for each other and say, hey, in a world of those who fall by the wayside, look at these people. They finished well. Let's seek to be those kind of people. But then he comes in verse 17, and I believe this is where he's talking about the current leaders, because he doesn't say remember them. He says obey your leaders and submit to them. The word obey there, it's, it's actually the word to be persuaded. Be persuaded by your leaders. It's the idea of trust, confidence. That as you see your leaders and that they handle God's word well, that they've set their confidence in the unchanging character of God. He says, have the disposition of being willing to be persuadable by them. Don't sit there with your arms folded and say, you better prove this to me 15 ways between now and Tuesday or I'm not going with you. He says, if you see their faithful character... Be persuadable, have confidence, trust in them, and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They will one day give an account both for how they led and for how you followed, which is why he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Be persuadable. Trust in their character. Don't be blind lemmings because there are so many people who have been led astray by leaders who are not trusting in the unchangeable character of God but their own charisma and whimsy and ability to smile nice and have a bunch of people in a room. Man, if you you see people who live lives like they're trusting in the unshakable character of God, go with them. If he's talking here about the current leaders, as a matter of fact, as he continues in verse 18, I think that the writer of Hebrews was one of those leaders he's been separated from them he's gone on a journey or maybe he's been imprisoned or something like that which is why in verse 18 he says pray that i might be restored to you i'm one of those who's keeping watch over your soul and giving you account and it's hard to be away from you i want to come back let me ask you this question though like this is what i've been thinking about who are those leaders here in every generation in every local church god raises up leaders to guide his people on the journey to jesus outside the camp on the journey of giving up our sense of at-homeness in this world so that we can actually serve this world as representatives of Jesus' kingdom. Here at Cornerstone, we have a group of men who, there are many people here who I believe are living lives that are worth following, who are trusting the unshakable character of Jesus, which is why I love being a part of this church. But in particular, we have a group of men here who have taken on this mantle, this responsibility of keeping watch over our souls who carry the heavy responsibility that one day they will give an account for. Here at Cornerstone, we call them our elders. I have the privilege of getting to serve alongside them. And while I can vouch for the fact that they're not perfect examples, I see the way that they are accountable to one another and honest with one another and confess their sin to one another. And And I look at that and I go, man, these are men worth following. I would say probably... Some of you know most of them, and most of you probably know some of them. And as In the fall, actually after we finish the book of Ruth, we're going to spend some time uh, doing a series called On the Church, of who are we supposed to be as the church. And one of the things that, um, that we're going to build into that series is an opportunity to get to know, for some of you guys, face-to-face, who these elders are and their wives and their children and these people that we can look at and say, follow them, they're living a life worth following. But let me close with this. Where are our leaders, where are our elders seeking to lead us? And I would kind of break it down into three main things. Our leaders are seeking to lead us to be the church to God. To be a group of people who are devoted to God. Those who acknowledge our, uh, and turn from our sin, who seek to root out those competing allegiances and those ways in which we've confused our con- commitment to God with commitment to many other things, so that way we can be a group of people who are holy and devoted to God, who seek his kingdom and righteousness more than our own comfort. Our elders are also seeking to teach us and lead us in what it means to be the church to the church. What does it mean for us to be committed to one another, to find our shared identity as adopted children of God and then live like we're family? To actually live like our identity in Christ and with each other is stronger than our national citizenship, is stronger than our political preference, is stronger than whether you're a boomer or millennial or whatever generation you identify with. That your identity in Christ is stronger than birth, family, what country you came from, your ethnic heritage, your hobbies. Get this. Even your music preferences. To actually be a group of people where we don't just go, okay, I know we're all Christians, but you gotta like the same band I like. I know we're all Christians, but these millennials, man, they gotta figure it out. I know we're all Christians, but these old people they gotta figure Come on, we are a family together. And that's one of the things that our elders is passion, a passion of their hearts, is how to help us grow as that one family. And the last thing I would say is this. Our elders are seeking to lead us to be the church to the world, to embrace that identity as exiles, as a- outsiders, as ambassadors for God's kingdom, to be a group of people who live distinct from our community for the sake of our community. The whole reason there's that big map of Simi Valley outside is to help us grapple with this same idea. If going outside the camp to Jesus doesn't mean living off in the hills, but it means living here, then where has God placed us, like Daniel and his friends, to be exiles and ambassadors for God? To even bear reproach for Jesus' sake. To endure whatever reproach or marginalization may come not just for Jesus' sake, but also for the sake of the world that Jesus loves. That's a heavy responsibility. And I would say, even as one of your pastors, I don't take that responsibility lightly. But I'm so grateful that it does not depend upon our ability alone. It's not about our wisdom or our strength. Jesus said that he would build his church, and that's why the gates of Hades would not be able to prevail against it. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the one that we're all following. God the Father is the one who is at work in us by his spirit whom he's given us to equip us and lead us in this way. So I want to invite the band back up and here's how I would love to close. Verses 20 and 21 of this chapter is his closing prayer to the whole book. Would you pray with me these verses? Now to the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. May he equip us as his people with everything good so that we might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen.